you a sinner? Are you sure of this? Now, would it even be a good thing to answer yes? Isn't that arrogant to say, I'm sure that I will be with the Lord when I die? Wouldn't that be presuming on the Lord and trusting your own ability to be, be a Christian, to remain a Christian? Wouldn't that be a sign of arrogance? And we're going to be looking at this question very carefully today and also for the next several weeks. We're going to take a couple of months to look at this. And we're going to see, actually, that what you believe about assurance of faith will shape what you think about church, of God's design for the church. If you believe the Bible's teaching about assurance of salvation, you're going to love and you're going to be grateful for how the Lord has designed his dear church. But if you don't, you are going to be really bothered by the way the Lord shapes the church. And you're going to try to find reasons for ignoring these commands and reshaping the church to do something other than it was truly created to do. What we believe about how a person is saved, and if a person can be assured that they are saved, and how a person can be assured that they are saved, that's going to shape a church. And that's what we intend to do in this next preaching series. Friends, I want you to be saved. And I want you to be sure that you are saved. So that you can enjoy that gift. That gift which comes from the Holy Spirit, that gift of being assured of it. If you were to adopt a child... You would have to go through a bunch of legal steps to make that child your child. So that it's not just a feeling that that child is your child, but that child is actually your child. The child now is your last name. That child is now your son or daughter, and you are that child's mom or dad. They are your child. Legally, officially, you've done all that is required to make them your child. But if you were a good mom or dad, it wouldn't be sufficient that it was true. What you would desire for that child is for them to be sure that they belong to you. It would give you pain to know that they are sitting in their bedroom wondering, do I really, am I really mom and dad's kid? Do they really love me like a kid, like their own child? It would grieve you that they would not be sure of it. And you would work to assure them. Not just that you adopt children, but that you adopted them. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in giving assurance to those whom Christ purchased with his blood and whom the Father has adopted because of what Christ has done. Our first point today is this. Salvation is sure because it is of the Lord. Salvation is sure because it is of the Lord. So why is it that we 
the brand of Christian, you might say, that the Christians who believe in the Bible's teaching about how weak and sinful and prone to stumble and prone to wander. Why is it that we can proudly preach the gorgeous doctrine of assurance of salvation? Why is it that we can do that while we also preach the depravity of humans, the complete fallenness of humans? And that's because we gladly believe and preach the gorgeous doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. We believe that salvation is of the Lord. Completely, from first to last. We believe that in Adam, all men and women fell and are all spiritually dead, not just spiritually sick, not just spiritually confused. We are spiritually dead, incapable of doing any saving good. Not only that, we're with hearts, we are born with hearts now that don't desire salvation. We don't want to be saved because salvation isn't simply forgiveness. It is certainly forgiveness. But salvation is more than that. It is reconciliation. Reconciliation with a God who we naturally hate more than anything else we hate in the world. There's nothing that we hate more than God if we are not saved. Now, we might not think that because we've created our own image of God. I'm like, I don't hate that. Like, yeah, you're not talking about God. But when we're talking about the God revealed in the Bible, the God who actually made heaven and earth, that God we hate, and we hate him more than anything else, and we are so dead in our sin that we could not make any movement towards salvation, and we wouldn't want to. Who would want to be adopted by an enemy they hate with every fiber of their being? And so we believe that when the, we believe that when the salvation teaches us that salvation is of the Lord, it means that salvation is of the Lord. We believe that. The reason we can be sure of salvation is because it's completely in the hands of a sovereign God, a God who does as he pleases. And Romans 8 is one of the sweetest passages dealing with assurance. And, but we're, but we're going to begin with the end of this passage so that we can ground ourselves in the question of why is it, because near the beginning of the chapter, he's going to be midway through the chapter and beginning, he's going to be talking about assurance, the Spirit's work to assure the saints. But now we're going to go all the way down to the bedrock that he grounds all that assurance in. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verse 28 all the way to verse 39, to the end of the chapter. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is sure because salvation is of the Lord. Did you notice how the Father, he chose for himself a, a people before the foundation of the world. He predestined them. He elected them. If you are a Christian... If you are redeemed and forgiven and adopted, it's because God the Father chose you. He elected you. He predestined you. He decided that you would be saved before he created the world. He decreed it to be. It was not left for chance events in human history. He wasn't hoping that there would one day be a Savior and that you would one day possibly hear of him and that you would one day find it in your heart to believe in him he wasn't hoping any of these things salvation is sure because god the father decided it would happen he decreed it to be he chose you to be saved and to remain saved the father elects this is why we can have assurance because salvation is sure who shall bring a charge against the elect? No one. But I wonder if you also notice the son's role. The son's role. It's God the son who justified us with his death. We see that. Salvation is sure because it rests on the merits of Christ's blood. Not, not ours. His life not the merits of our life. It rests on the worthiness of the sacrifice of his life, not the worthiness of the sacrifice of our lives. It rests completely on Christ's life. If Christ did receive the wrath of God for the church, it could never be possible for someone then who is saved to later go to hell. It wouldn't be possible because Christ already drank hell dry on the cross for the elect. If your salvation depended in any way on how obedient you were, how loving you were, then it would be anything but sure and it would be very arrogant to have assurance. But salvation is sure because the Son redeems sinners. He doesn't just make redemption possible, He redeems he doesn't try to redeem he 
redeemed. Salvation is sure because it is of the Lord. But that's, of course, not enough. Because not all people are saved. We know this through the pages of Scripture that that it is not enough to say that sinners are saved because not all sinners are saved. Not all people are saved. Not all are redeemed. Some do not hear the gospel. And some hear the gospel and do not believe it. In fact, none of the people who heard the gospel would have faith in the gospel. Because if you want to look in in Ephesians chapter 2 and dozens of other places, God describes sinners as dead. Enemies of God, haters of God. God describes sinners as dead. So how is it that anyone responds to the gospel when they hear it? And the answer that, that Romans 8 gives us is that God calls them. He calls them. He calls them effectively. His spirit works in them to call them in such a way that they come. He gives them ears to hear. He gives them a heart which believes. He gives them eyes to see, eyes that now see God as lovely and somebody who they'd want to be reconciled to, eyes that despise their sin and want to be, rec- want to be saved from their sin, not just from their judgment. So this means that we're talking about a special call. God the Spirit working faith in our hearts. It's not that we hear the gospel in our hearts spoken by the Spirit. It is that we hear it with our ears preached by someone, some other human, and the very fact that we believe it, that is the Spirit's call. That is the Spirit's call because otherwise we would not receive the gospel. We would not believe it. We would hate it or be indifferent to it. This has been called the golden chain before for good reason. The golden chain, the links in the chain, all of which are things that God himself does. And I wondered if you noticed the end of that golden chain. For those who are foreknown, that means pre-loved, loved before they existed, Foreknown for those who God elected and then goes those who God called and justified. It always, always, always ends in, it always ends in glorification. Let's read this, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It always ends in glorification. It always ends in the perseverance and it always ends in being glorified, standing face to face with God, blameless, standing in Christ's robes of righteousness. So the Father elects, the Son atones, and the Spirit applies that atonement permanently to all whom the Son atoned for on the cross. Salvation is sure, brothers and sisters, Because it is from the Lord from first to last. This is why we who believe what the Bible says about the depravity of men, the sinfulness, the weakness, the the, the fact that we are so prone to wander, that's why we can also preach in the beautiful, beautiful doctrine of assurance. Because salvation is of the Lord. Brings us to our second point, which is this. 
Assurance is a gift to all the redeemed, even the weak. And it grows. Assurance is a gift to all the redeemed, even the weak, and it grows. For this, I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, just a very clear passage of this. Assurance of salvation is not merely being sure that God saves sinners, not only that God fully saves sinners and keeps them to the uttermost, but that you are one of those sinners who has been saved by the Father, Son, and Spirit. Assurance is not just the belief that salvation is of the Lord, but that it is mine. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. This means that assurance is part of the gift to anyone who is truly a believer. Because anyone who truly has faith has sure faith. There's no other kind of salvation than sure salvation. Anything that's not sure is not actually salvation. It's not the possession of a privileged few. I want you to notice in this letter to the Hebrews how the author, who has given very terrible, terrible warnings and corrections to these believers, he's rebuked them for their lack of faith and for their immaturity. It is to these people that he commands them to draw near to God in full assurance. Hebrews chapter 10, let's begin at verse 19. We'll read to 25. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is no drawing near to God that hopes Christ's sacrifice is good enough. Not in an unsure hope. All drawing near to God is based on the confidence that Christ's sacrifice is perfect. Of course, there's doubts from time to time about whether it, it belongs to us. But there can be no doubt that Christ was worthy sacrifice. There can be no doubt based on whether Christ is actually worthy. Maybe he's unworthy. Maybe he's like 99.9% .9 worthy and God will just accept it because God grades on a scale. If you come to God in that way, hoping that Christ was just good enough, you're not actually drawing near to the Christian God in a Christian way. Now, your faith may in fact be weak which the believers that he wrote the book of Hebrews to had weak, weak faith. They were rebuked and corrected and even addressed with the kind of what in the world are you thinking kind of speech. To all of them who actually believed this, with as little measure of faith which they, they each possessed, to them belonged the invitation, not just an invitation, but the command 
to approach the throne of grace with full assurance, confident that the Son's merits are applied to sinners, and that the Father always accepts the Son's merits, and that the Spirit has applied those to you. Now, some have taught that this assurance of faith is not something which a person can possess unless they've received some sort of vision or supernatural revelation. That something other than the Word of God and the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, something other than that is necessary. Otherwise, you can be a believer and you, you can be saved, but you can't really be sure about it. It's wrong to be sure about it unless God in a vision told you you can be sure about it. But of course, this passage in its context kills that teaching. Some also believe that it's some super status as a believer. Once you're good enough, then you can be sure. Once you have perfect faith, then you can be sure. But this is false. And it's because salvation is not something that's based on the strength of your faith. Salvation is not based on the strength of your faith. The strength of your salvation is not based on the strength of your faith. It is based on the strength of the one you're having faith in. I can have incredibly strong faith in weak ice, in thin ice. It doesn't make a difference. I'm going to fall through. And I can have really weak faith in strong ice, in thick ice, and it will hold me. The sureness of your salvation is not based on the sureness of your, or the strength of your faith. Where does the author of the book of Hebrews place this confidence? Where does he root the assurance that the sheep ought to have? He doesn't root it in some private revelation or a feeling that they will have. It's not in their obedience. He's not saying, hey, because you're so obedient, you guys can draw near to God with full assurance. Now remember, it's, it actually begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. Where and why, how can we draw near to God with full assurance? He just finished saying in verses 12 to 14 that by a single offering of sin, Jesus made perfect all who are being sanctified. And then he quotes in verse 17 a promise from God, from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah, that God will remember his people's sin no more. Here is the pattern for where we can find and ground our assurance. Number one, it is the event of the gospel. The gospel is an event. It's a historical event. It's something that actually happened. On the cross, Jesus of Nazareth did die in place of sinners. He did take their sin. He did take their punishment. He did die. He did rise from the dead three days later. That did happen. It's an event where something took place, where salvation actually took place. And so he grounds it in the death and resurrection of Christ, that historical event. And then he also now takes a piece of Scripture where God is making a promise based on that event. And so shall our assurance be grounded on the event of the cross and God's promises about that event. So all who are saved can be assured that they are saved. Even though you may not feel assurance immediately when you become a Christian. 
it's not because you don't have it. Sometimes your assurance may even shrink. It rises and it sometimes falls. But God's gift of salvation is one which includes the comforting work of assurance. It's part of faith. And some believers may wait some time before they have assurance. But it's not a sign that they don't have faith or that they don't belong to the Lord. But it is God's intention to give assurance through the ordinary works such as scripture and prayer and fellowship of the church so that his dear children whom he has adopted can enjoy their salvation even before their faith becomes sight. Because the love that God has for his people is a steadfast love. It is a covenant love. As you read the Psalms over and over and over, you get that steadfast love, steadfast love, steadfast love endures forever, steadfast love endures forever. That is the love that God wants his children to enjoy. Not just love from God, not just affection from God, but steadfast love, steadfast affection, enduring forever. And we can enjoy that before our faith becomes sight. That brings us to our third point. Third point is this, beware of false assurance. Beware of false assurance. For that, I want you to turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're looking at false assurance. Beware of false assurance. James chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14, and we'll read all the way to verse 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the, ne the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Go to the very beginning here. That analogy, that illustration he uses in verse 15 of somebody declaring to somebody else declaring to a poor person that they should be well and then does not give them what is necessary to be well. See that illustration? Some have taken that this is an illustration of somebody who has false faith. 
It's not. Although you could, you, it works very well that way. It actually is an illustration of somebody who is claiming that God has said, you're my son, I have saved you, and then God actually hasn't saved them. Where it's simply just the words of God, but not the actions of God along with that. And so we see by James that there are people who are trusting in a false version of salvation where God doesn't actually save sinners. Where God merely forgives them, but he doesn't actually rescue them. He doesn't actually reconcile them. He does nothing in them. There is an assurance which is false. There are people who are sure that all is well with their souls, and yet they have no good reason to be sure of that. False assurance is based upon false faith. True assurance grows as true faith grows. False assurance is based on a false faith. People who are sure that they are saved but are surely not. Notice it doesn't say that those people who have faith, but they need to be works. They need to add works in order to be saved. He's not saying that. He's actually saying they don't have actual saving faith. In verse 14, James asks rhetorically, rhetorically, he says, can that faith save him? He doesn't say, can faith, can true faith without works save people? He's not saying that. He's saying, can that faith save him? He's not asking if true faith without works can save a person. He's saying that this guy's faith isn't actually gospel faith because it isn't producing fruit. Should this guy, James says, with this kind of faith be assured that it is well with him when he stands before God in judgment? And the answer is surely no. Demons have that kind of faith. They don't need, demons don't just need add works to their faith to be saved. That's foolish. They don't have faith. They don't have saving faith. See, true faith believes the facts of the gospel are true that Jesus died and rose from the dead and that Jesus is Lord of all. Demons believe that. And so does everyone who has true faith. But true faith also embraces the fact that Jesus reconciles not just sinners, but this sinner. Satan doesn't, he, he doesn't embrace the fact, he doesn't lean on the, fa- the faith that Jesus reconciled him to God. Satan doesn't want to to be reconciled to God. He doesn't believe he's reconciled to God. He doesn't want to be reconciled to God. He doesn't want to be reconciled from, to be rescued from sin. That's the last thing Satan wants. Satan would love to be rescued from hell. He's kind of upset he's getting a punishment, kind of as an understatement, but he does not want to be rescued from sin. So James is saying that this guy who is assured of his salvation He doesn't understand salvation. He isn't trusting the cross of Christ to reconcile him to God. He's only trusting the cross to save him from hell. But that's not the gospel, and that's not faith then. So false assurance belongs to unsaved people who trust that they are children of God and who have escaped the wrath of God, but who have not. And so we are told to beware of this. False assurance also sometimes belongs to saved people. Some people who are genuinely saved but have no reason to be assured of this. 
because they are rejecting all the Spirit's assuring work in their life. Whatever their assurance they are feeling is not the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a false assurance. These people who are living in unrepentant sin, who care nothing for the holiness of God, who are straying in sin rather than wrestling against it, who have settled their battle against sin and have just settled it and have agreed to just let sin win, they should have no confidence. The Spirit of God will actually remove that false assurance from those people so that they can see the danger of their path and they can repent and then have their false assurance which embraces sin to have this false assurance replaced with true assurance worked by the Holy Spirit. False assurance often comes in well-behaved packages. False assurance doesn't always look like somebody being an axe murderer and saying, I'm a Christian. There are those with a false assurance which does not come from the Holy Spirit but straight from Satan and it's assurance based not on the cross of Christ and his finished work and on God's promises. It's a false assurance based on their own worth and works. And we only need to turn to the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to illustrate this. Where two men went to pray to God. One is trusting that he will be received by God because he has done obedient works to God's law. And Jesus said that man is condemned. He has no reason to be assured of his salvation. But the man who seeks the Lord and says, have mercy on me, a sinner, can be assured of his salvation. False assurance comes in some pretty well-behaved packages. So maybe it's a false assurance that's based on the change in your life since becoming a Christian. Maybe it's based on the ease of your life. I must belong to God because he, he keeps blessing me. He keeps giving me health and a good job and a family. Maybe it's actually based on the hardness of your life. I must be saved because look what I've been through. It's kind of a salvation by suffering or, or poverty kind of a thing. Perhaps it's based on what you've given. Maybe it's based on feelings you get when you sing songs or when you listen to Christian music. Maybe it's based on the difference between your behavior and some other person who's worse than you. And if that's where your confidence lies, if you belong to the Lord, he will remove that confidence. He will lovingly remove some of those things. He will discipline you as a father so that your confidence will be placed on that which is truly secure. The death of Christ and his resurrection with, which reconciles sinners to God. Friends, if God does not do that painful work and if he permits you to have confidence that rests on these things, it is actually an indication that you are not his child. He promises to discipline those whom he loves. The Holy Spirit works to remove false assurance of his dear children and replace it with that assurance based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago and on the promises that he makes because of that in Scripture. Brings us to our third point. 
The Spirit assures us of the work of the Father and the Son. The Spirit assures us of the work of the Father and the Son. We're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning. We're going to be looking at, we're going to be watching and just seeing the assuring work of the Holy Spirit described in Scripture. Rather than Rather than um, examining it so much, we're just going to look at it and see what does this work look like? How does he assure us? What does his assuring work in us look like? Things which he does that when you put them all together, they can only be described by the miraculous work of God in a person. A person who used to be dead but is now alive. A person who used to hate God with all their being but now loves God. We've already seen that he will not be helping us to place our confidence in anything about us, not even the good things that we've done since we become Christians, but instead he works to assure us on the work of the Father and the Son which have been done for us. We're going to turn to 1 John chapter, we're going to look at a bunch of verses here. But the theme is this, in all these verses that tie all these verses together, there is a reception to the word of God that can only be explained by the indwelling work of the Spirit. There's a reception to the Word of God that can only be described and explained by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to read 1 John chapter 4, 1 to 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We see this. We hear the word of Jesus in the scriptures and receive it as true. And when John is saying, listens to us, He's not just saying listens to Christians. He's talking about the apostles. He's talking about the men set apart by the Lord Jesus to essentially write the New Testament, those promises and the eyewitness testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, you will believe what they say because it was the Spirit who, by, whom, by the Spirit that they wrote those things, and so you will also receive them. You receive, do not listen to us. And he's talking about the apostles, the, the, the words of the New Testament, and then also the Old Testament. So you hear the word of Jesus, and you receive it as true. It's just a beautiful application of that illustration which Jesus uses in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They hear it, and they follow it. They believe what it says. They heed its warnings. They're comforted by its comforts. They worship God, the God who's revealed in Scripture. And they believe the promises that God speaks in Scripture. And here John uses the example of Jesus coming in the flesh. The fact that they believe that that God the Son became flesh to take on flesh and in that flesh saved sinners. That, if you believe that and you embrace that, 
If you confess that truly from your heart, it can only be described and explained as the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You wouldn't do that if it weren't the Holy Spirit's work in you. You wouldn't believe them and also embrace them and love those things. You wouldn't confess that. That wouldn't be your joyful confession. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. When he's saying this, it doesn't mean under some like special control of the Spirit that's foreign to Christians and it happens once in a while. He's saying you don't say Jesus is Lord and mean it and love it unless the Spirit did that in you. Pair that with Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, which says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You will not believe and confess the gospel truly if it weren't for the Spirit's work in you. Philippians chapter 3, 2 to 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When you worship the Lord, when you are sure that he hears your worship and is pleased by it, why are you sure that he will receive your worship? Are you sure of it because, because of the things that you did earlier that week? You've lived a pretty good Christian life, and so now when you come to church on Sunday and you sing praises to him, he's going to receive it because that's the kind of praise he wants? Or is all your confidence that the Lord will receive your worship in the work of Christ? Christ died for me. He washed me of my sin. I'm clothed in his righteousness. And so the Lord God will receive my worship. If you put confidence in the flesh, that is no sign of the work of the Spirit. But if you put confidence in Christ as you worship, that is the Spirit's work in you, his assuring work in you. Romans 8, back to Romans. Romans 8, verse 1 to 14. Romans 8, 1 to 14. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, does, uh, if any, sorry, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. First, there is no condemnation that you believe that there is no condemnation for you because Christ took that condemnation on the cross. If you believe that, that's the Spirit's work in you. Second, that you have already died to sin. That you died when Christ died. That Christ put to death your old life and he gave you the spirit to, to live a new life. This is what the spirit reminds you of. For a believer who is straying, the spirit will not let you continue to stray unimpeded. He will remind you that those who belong to Christ have died to sin. Essentially saying by the ministry of the word, he will be saying, aren't you dead to sin? Aren't you a child of God now? Didn't God adopt you? Why are you acting like his enemy? The worst thing to be in the world in terms of enjoyment is to be a believer who is living in unrepentant sin. Because God's spirit will not let you fully and finally enjoy that. He will remind you that this is sin against a God who has rescued you. And he will remind you of what, if it is true that you haven't died to sin, of what truly is your fate. He will remind you and assure you even that you have already died to sin, so you ought not live in it anymore. The Spirit will bring you to repentance. This is a question. Can you be brought back to repentance? The answer for all of those who are in Christ is yes. You will struggle with sin. But you will struggle with it. And that is the Spirit's work in you to put it to death and to not accept the fact that you are living as an enemy of God. You will hate it and you will wrestle with the Lord's strength against it. Romans 8, 15 to 17, let's read that. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's the Spirit's assuring work in us. Prayer to God as Father in the midst of suffering. Prayer to God as Father in the midst of suffering. 
In the middle of suffering, the Spirit works in us to cry out to God rather than to other gods or rather than giving up. He works in us to cry out to God, not as a stranger or an enemy, but as Father. To view God as your Father, to trust that Jesus died for you and now you are enjoying Christ's relationship with the Father, and then to cry out to God as Father can only be described by the Spirit's work in you. This is his assuring work in you. Not that he's whispering to your ear, you are God's son, you are God's daughter. It's actually sweeter than that. He's the one that's working in you, the ability to cry out to God, no longer as an enemy, but as a blood-bought child. Romans 8, 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await, uh, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Spirit works in us a longing for glory. Even a longing for the glory of God to be revealed is a gift, a work, evidence of the Spirit in you. A longing for the rebellion against God to finally cease and not be satisfied with the things of the world, but groaning along with fallen creation for the reign of Christ to be fully revealed. So brothers and sisters, this doesn't mean that we hear the Spirit groaning in our mind. It means that such a groaning, when you look at the world around you, you look at your own sinful body, and you long for the day when there will be no sin or stain of sin, and the glory of God is not covered up, by wickedness, but fully on display. When you long for that, that is the Spirit working that in you that you would not have worked in your own heart. Even groaning for the Lord's return is a work, a sweet, assuring work of the Holy Spirit within you. And we see this on full display in our world right now. People sure that our best life is now. I want a world without risk right now. And I'm going to lose my mind if it doesn't happen. But believers can groan. We know there's risk. We know there's death. We know there's sickness. We just buried loved ones. But we groan in hope. Assured that there will one day be a world without stain of sin where no rebellion exists against the Lord, and no stain of rebellion, such as sin and death, remains. Brothers and sisters and unbelieving guests, do you have assurance 
When you consider the promises of the gospel that are in Christ, that God saves sinners, do you have confidence that, yes, it's true, but also, not just that God saves sinners, but that he saved you? This confidence is a gift of God's spirit that was purchased for all who belong to Christ. You don't need to wait for some revelation from God. That happened. The Son of God was revealed 2,000 years ago, and your eyes were opened to it by the Holy Spirit's work. God not only desires that you be saved, but that you have assurance that you are his and will be forever. Not just that he's holding you, but that he holds you fast. Perhaps as you consider assurance, you realize you have no reason to be assured of your salvation because you are not saved. And if that is true, that's a gift of God that he has just given you to realize that you need to be saved. Removal of that false assurance so that it can be replaced with a glorious, true, and sure assurance. Perhaps you have confessed Christ and believed the truths of the gospel, but you are now living in unrepentant sin, maybe a secret sin that no one knows about. Or perhaps it's just that you're refusing to accept some of the things that are revealed in God's word. That's sin as well. And it may be true that you are a backsliding Christian. It may also be true that you are a false convert. And while you are living in unrepentant sin, you cannot be sure which one it is. But the end of your life approaches, and it approaches quicker than you think. And it is foolish to go to the end without knowing for certain that it is well with your soul. It is foolish to go to the grave without being sure that you belong to the Lord. So repent and turn again to the Lord. And if you do, you will realize in the end that that was the Spirit who worked that repentance in you. Perhaps you were a believer who was fretting about his or her salvation. You believe all that God's word says, and you long for him, and you treasure him. Dear brother, dear sister, wait on the Lord, and he will renew your strength. Do not place your confidence in the feeling of confidence. But look to the cross. The event of the cross. That your sin was nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. So it is well. And then look to the Lord's promises in his scripture for all who have faith in the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful not only that you have adopted us by the, the death and resurrection of your son, but that you provide assurance for us that we can enjoy not just the love of God, but the steadfast love of God. That we can delight in not the fact just that you saved sinners, but that you saved us. And Lord, I pray that this would be a treasure that we actively treasure. And Lord, I pray that you would bring repentance where it is needed. Lord, I pray that you would bring salvation where salvation has not yet come. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful brothers and sisters to one another, working to minister the gospel to one another 
so that all who know the Lord may have assurance that the Lord knows them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.